All right, we are thinking about the mind, which is kind of weird when you think about it. We're thinking about the thing that does the thinking. And so we're thinking about the mind together, and it's an important topic. I don't know about you, but sometimes I felt that my mind has become overwhelmed, especially these last couple of years, with information, with ideas, with opinions, with all kinds of stuff that comes at us that we have to sort. Sometimes I think my mind feels kind of like this graphic I found on Facebook. Like an internet browser, 17 tabs are open, four of them are frozen, and I don't know where the music is coming from. You ever feel like that? Well, if you feel like that, you're not alone. And it's not just age for some of us. Uh, you're not alone. Uh, there's a group of scientists that dedicate um, you know, their whole life to studying the mind and studying the information we receive. And apparently, they have measured the amount of data that enter the brain and found that an average person living today in North America processes as much as 74 gigabytes of information a day. Now, that might not mean too much to you, but here, to put it in perspective, that is as much as watching 16 movies. That's how much information per day we are bombarded with and need to kind of process. And we receive that information through so many different mediums, through TV and through computers, through our cell phones, through social media and tablets and billboards, printed materials, radio, personal conversations, sermons. I am con contributing to your information overload right now. And it's a lot to process. Here's something else I found interesting. Every year, this amount of information that we have to process increases by about 5%. It's growing. It's not going to get easier to process this amount of information. Only 500 years ago, I know that sounds like a big number, but it's really not that long in the history of the world. 500 years ago, 74 gigabytes of information would be what a highly educated person would consume in a lifetime through books and stories. You see the acceleration of information and what we have to deal with, and what we have to process, what we're requiring of our minds. It's no wonder we sometimes feel overwhelmed. So we're not alone in this. Here's my concern, and it's probably your concern too. That's a, a volume of information, but not a lot of depth. And I think that's very true of the way that we handle information these days. We know a very lot about a very, or a very little about a very lot. <laughs> uh, we, we don't go deep. We're not a terribly reflective culture or society. We don't take a moment to pause and, and let the, the truths and the information sink down and actually shape our lives because we're so busy sorting it and consuming it and maybe even creating it. And so we don't go terribly deep with this information. But here's the other really uh, thing that I'm very concerned about, and that's this. It seems to me that an increasing amount of this information is negative. Does it feel like that to you? I don't have facts and figures to back that up. I'm just going by the kind of gut feeling that it seems to be an increasing negative perspective that we're finding in some of our information sources. Uh, a number of months ago, actually, years ago, I lose track of time now, but this is before the pandemic, and I've, I've relayed this story to some of you. I had a call from a lady in the community, and she called up, and right out of the gate, she had a question. Is the world going to end soon? 
And I said, probably, and hung up. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. So I said, well, let's talk about that. You know, why do you think that? What, what, what's going on in your mind that caused you to think that or feel that? And so we talked for some time, and I realized that she hasn't felt that sense of impending doom all of her life. It's actually just been the last three weeks. Well, that's curious. What happened three weeks ago? What changed in your life that caused you to think about it? So we talked about that some more, and we pinpointed the cause. It was an iPad that had been given to her from her granddaughter. And when she got this iPad, she subscribed to a 24-7 news source, and she didn't know how to turn off the notifications. And so notifications were popping up all the time. It would wake her up in the middle of the night. Horrific news story after news story coming in, and suddenly the horrors of the world are in the palm of her hand. And she was overwhelmed. And that's the reality that we're facing, I think this negativity that can be out there that we maybe could have avoided at times. It's right here. And we're faced with it each and every day. So what do we do with that? How do we protect our mind? How do we form a resilient mindset in the face of information overload when a lot of it's negative? How do we do that? Well, thankfully, the Bible actually has a lot to say about our mind. It uses different words in Hebrew and Greek, and we don't need to get into all that. But generally, when we talk about the mind in the Bible, we're talking about our inner processes. We're talking about the way that we think about ourselves and the world around us. But it's also connected to our emotions, right? It's the way we feel about ourselves and the world around us. And it's also connected to our uh, engagement in the world and our motivations, what we intend to do and why we do certain things. But primarily, we want to think about our thoughts, how we think about ourselves and the world around us. And how do we form this resilient mindset when it comes to our inner monologue and what we tell ourselves and how we process information? So last week, we learned one word and a strategy associated with that word. And the word was, I'm not going to quiz you, so don't, don't panic. The word was replace. We are called to replace the lies that we believe about ourselves and our world with God's truth. And we see that when Paul says that we need to tear down the strongholds of faulty thinking and bring those thoughts captive to the truth about Jesus. That's what we're called to do. Sometimes we have these lies. Maybe we've learned them, maybe even from people we trust who have told us that we're not good enough or not lovable or not whatever. Or maybe we believe these lies that if only I had such and such a thing that I would be fulfilled in my life. And, and we have to identify them. We have to tear them down and we have to bring them to the truth that Jesus wants to speak to us in order to be free. That's one of the ways. That's one of the strategies. Our lives will move in the direction of our thoughts. And so it's very important that we believe the truth. Okay, we move to Philippians now in the passage that was read for us, and we have some more great instruction on how to create a resilient mind. And the key word we want to learn today is this. Ready? Refocus. Refocus is another key word when it comes to how we develop our mind. And the passage, very kindly by the Holy Spirit, is broken down into three sections. 
and that enables Baptist preachers to continue to do what we do. And there are three sections in this passage, and I think it's really important to look at them individually because all of them deal with the mind, and they all deal with peace, but they do it from slightly different angles. So let's start with the first section, verses 1 to 3. This is where we're called to refocus our attitude. Refocus our attitude. As Sarah read for us, uh, we learned about two women in the church at Philippi, Euodia and Syntyche. I don't know how to pronounce her name, so I think that Sarah probably did a better job. She just sounded more like sure of herself. So that's the, that's the key, really, is if you're not sure how to pronounce the name, just say it with confidence. No one else knows how to pronounce it. So Euodia and Syntyche, and these were prominent women in the church, and I would say leaders in the church. That's very important to understand. These were leaders in the church because Paul calls them co-workers. It's the same word he uses when he talks about Timothy and other men that he worked alongside with. So these are of the same status as these co-workers in the gospel, Euodia and Syntyche. And we shouldn't be surprised at this, at, at the women who were prominent and leaders in this church, because that's how the church started. If you want to find out how uh, the church in Philippi started, you go to Acts chapter 16. And what you find there is that Paul and some of his companions went to this place across the river where they knew there would be a, a place for worship. I don't really understand what all that meant, but a place of prayer. And found a whole bunch of women praying. And so they began to share the gospel with these women. And there's one woman in particular, and her name was Lydia. And she was a businesswoman, a seller of purple. And she believed the gospel and invited the apostles back to her house. And that seems to be the start of a home church because her whole household was baptized. Her household. And so she became one of the prominent leaders in that church. And so we also have Yodi and Syntyche. But there's a problem. They're arguing or something. They have some kind of dispute. And wouldn't you love to know what it was? Like, like, aren't you just a little bit curious? This is when these letters, we only have one side of the conversation, but I'd love someone to spill the tea on this one because I wonder, like, what is happening here that it's such a big deal that Paul has to mention it to everyone in the letter? Yodia and Syntyche stop fighting with one another. Were they doing it publicly? Was it tearing the church apart? What was happening? So what does Paul say? How does he suggest that they resolve this? Do you see his words if you're reading in your Bible right now, or I'll just mention it? He says, be of the same mind. Yodia and Syntyche, be of the same mind. What does that mean? Does it mean they have to agree on absolutely everything? I hope not, because we need to learn to disagree with one another and yet still be together. I don't think they were called to agree with everything. Paul certainly didn't agree with everything, with Barnabas or with Peter or with some of the leaders in the churches. He had conflict. He dis disagreed. You know, if we only hung out with people that we fully agreed with, it would be a very small circle because we don't even agree with ourselves sometimes, right? So I don't think that's what Paul is looking for. Instead, we get a clue as to Paul, what Paul is calling them to. We get a clue in Philippians chapter 2 because the same word he uses for mind in chapter 4 he uses it in chapter 2 when he says this. He talks about Jesus. 
and that we should have the same mind as Jesus. What does that mean? Well, I think it talks about attitude, right? What was the attitude that Jesus had? Humility. It was the attitude of humility that he was ready to serve others. In fact, Paul goes on to say in Philippians chapter 2, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not look into your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Yodia and Syntyche, practice humility, even in your conflict. Be humble enough that you prefer one another above your own needs, your own agendas, your own egos. That's the way to move forward even in times of conflict. So we need to have a refocus in our attitude from simply our own agenda, our own egos, in order to practice humility. That's tough. That's so hard. So I would suggest that we don't even have to agree on everything in the church. We don't. But somehow we need to serve one another in humility as we go through this. That's one way. We refocus our attitude. Here's another. In verses 4 to 7, we see another thing about the mind. And Paul says, if we want to develop resilient minds, we need to refocus our anxiety. (laughs) Refocus our anxiety. Everybody have anxiety, I assume, from time to time? A few worries? I was telling Christine this morning that uh, I was kind of restless in my sleep in the early morning hours. I tried to go back to sleep, but I started to dream. And I, I dreamt that none of our clocks worked. I couldn't get a single clock. I tried in my dream to go to my phone and I couldn't find out the time. And I was so anxious in my dream that I woke up to check the time. It was 4.45, (laughs) right? Uh, But anxiety comes out in, in strange ways. And I think we actually understand now more than ever the harmful effects of persistent anxiety, right? Of worrying constantly. It's not just something that happens in our minds because we are whole beings. It affects all of us. It affects our bodies as well. Healthline, a website online, lists 12 different effects, harmful effects of persistent anxiety. Are you ready for them? This might actually make you anxious this morning, but here we go. 12 harmful effects of persistent anxiety. Panic attacks, headaches, irritability, breathing problems, upset stomach, muscle pain, increased blood pressure, extreme fatigue, loss of sex drive, pounding heart, depression, and a sense of doom. Anybody have it? No, don't put up your hands. But here's what I would say. If you have two or more of those symptoms, please, please see your doctor. (laughs) Uh, Maybe don't come to me with them. Uh, See your doctor. And I'm kind of joking about that, but also being serious. Because there should be no shame when we're facing some of those things to actually go and seek medical help. That's very legitimate and very important. And even just starting with our general doctor and going from there if we're finding ourselves in those kind of situations. So see your doctor, but also, says Paul, pray. Pray. That's the antidote. In everything, with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Pray. Paul's encouragement is to refocus our anxious thoughts through prayer. It doesn't have to be a fancy prayer. It doesn't have to be a long prayer. Turn it all into a request and just unburden it to God. He's big enough to take it. 
Prayer changes things. I know I've said that in the past, and you've said that probably, and it sounds a little bit flippant sometimes. What does it actually mean? But I really believe it. Prayer actually changes things. Certainly, prayer changes us when we begin to pray. It's interesting that prayer might actually change us physically as well. There's a group of doctors, Dr. Andrew Newberg and a whole group, not all of them Christians, some of them atheists, in fact, and they decided to study the effects of prayer on the brain. They're neuro, neuroscientists. And this is one of the things they discovered. Engaging in 12 minutes of personal reflection and prayer each day makes a profound impact on our brain. It strengthens a unique neural circuit that specifically enhances our social awareness and empathy and helps us love our neighbor by developing a heightened sense of compassion and subduing negative emotions. <laughs> there, if you needed scientific proof, well, prayer is good for us. We should know that already. We should pray whether it's good for us or not because God deserves to hear from us. He's worthy of that. But we pray, and in prayer, we refocus our anxiety and give it to God. If it's on your mind, then it's on God's heart. Think about that. If it's on your mind, if it's in your mind, then it's on God's heart. Craig Rochelle says this, if you're starting to experience some runaway negative thoughts, you're worried about your upcoming doctor's appointment, you don't know what decision to make, you're concerned about how your kid is doing in school, you'll feel like you're never going to find someone you want to marry, then the answer is pray. Pray. That's what Paul suggests here. We need to refocus our anxiety. Okay, the third thing in verses 8 and 9. We refocus our attitude, we refocus our anxiety, and the third thing is this, we refocus our attention. Refocus our attention onto things that are beautiful and good and true. Uh, Christine, my wife, works not too far from our home. In fact, we can see her workplace from our backyard. I sometimes wonder if we could string like a zip line. That would be a lot of fun, right across the Bow River, and we would get her there fast. It might be a little work to get her back, but we could certainly get her there. So we have to drive around, but it's only eight minutes long. It's a pretty sweet commute. There's only one problem. There's a tiny stretch of Deerfoot that we have to go on. And some days that eight minutes turns into 45 minutes long, all because of the Iverstrong Bridge. Some of you know the bridge of which I speak. It's not an engineering marvel. I feel we should just blow it up and rebuild somehow. Right? There's nothing to preserve there. There's no great historical artifacts in that bridge, but it causes all kinds of grief. And a slight accident, a slight fender bender, and all the traffic is backed up, way backed up. But here's the weird thing to me. If the accident happens in the northbound lanes, what happens to the southbound lanes? They're backed up too. Why? Why? Because of rubbernecking. People are looking. We need to see the accident. Instead of refocusing our attention on the road that's clear ahead, we need to have a good long look at who got wrecked, who got messed up in the accident. This is what researchers call negativity bias. There's a name for it. We humans have a weird propensity to give more weight in our minds to things that go wrong than to things that go right. A lot of our emotions, or a lot of our memories, 
that we hang on to more are the memories that are connected to negative emotions and feelings. And this is so much true that, that even one negative event can hijack our minds in ways that can be detrimental to our work, relationships, health, and our happiness. That's our proclivity is toward the negative. So we have a word of criticism that's given to us. We might have 10 positive things that people say, but we hold on to that one word, don't we? Or we see the traffic accident, or we see some bad news, or the latest viral outbreak, and news agencies know this. They play on it, right? They want to sensationalize the awful stuff that's happening in our world because we gravitate toward it, and we focus and fixate on it. And here Paul says this, as difficult as this is to overcome, we need to shift, we need to refocus our attention away from what is horrible and awful and evil to what is good and beautiful and true. This isn't burying our head in the sand. We need to acknowledge and deal with the evil in our world, absolutely. But to become fixated on it, to become so consumed by it, it destroys us. And so we need to look to that which is good and beautiful and true. Right at the beginning of the pandemic and the restrictions, there's so much information. I remember uh, driving one day and I had it on to News 660. You're only supposed to listen to that for about 10 minutes because it just repeats itself. I don't know if you listen to news radio, but I had it on nonstop, it seemed like for hours, waiting for, you know, what's gonna happen? What's this pandemic? What's the, the latest, you know, restrictions? Are, is everybody gonna die? <laughs> you know, like, I became kind of consumed by it. I finally turned it off in the car and realized that my mind had been preoccupied with doom and gloom for way too long. My whole body was tense. You ever feel that? And you just realize, what have I done to myself? Right around that time, a uh, Hollywood actor came out with a, um, a YouTube channel, and the YouTube channel was called Some Good News. <laughs> and he spent just 15, 20 minutes just reporting good news from around the world. That was my, I don't medicine during those first times, first uh, few months in the pandemic. Just to be able to watch that and recognize that evil stuff is happening, but there's also beauty and goodness and truth in the world. And whenever we see that, we know for sure that it's from God because God is good and true and beautiful. And so we focus on those things. So part of the biblical strategy for forming resilient minds is to refocus. Refocus our attitude, refocus our anxiety, refocus our attention. Now, some might say, well, that's easy for Paul. He was an apostle. He met Jesus. He had it all together. But remember, when Paul wrote this letter, he was in prison, nearing the end of his life. But this was still his strategy in order to build a resilient mind. I believe that if we do these things, as the Holy Spirit through Paul recommends, that we will experience a peace from God that passes understanding, that will keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we confess to you that this has been uh, difficult times, especially the last few years, even now. And sometimes we've chosen to not only focus on the things that are destructive and evil, but we've even generated information that's not helpful, that leads other people into 
negative thinking. Father, help us today. Help us in our attitude. Help us with our anxieties to cast all our cares on you because you care for us. And help us, Father, to find something today that speaks of your beauty and truth and goodness. May we meditate on that, and in doing so, may our minds be drawn to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.